So what do you think was the most popular verse in the world in 2016? Well, according to YouVersion, the world's favorite overall verse in the world in 2016, wait for it, Romans 8.28. You probably know it. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. And the top verse in 29 of the 88 countries and territories surveyed was Jeremiah 29.11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. Now why do you think those verses were the most popular in 2016? I think it's because perhaps we really want to believe that God loves us and has a wonderful plan for our life. And I think we cling to these verses because perhaps when we encounter the harsh realities of life, we begin to question His love and His plan for us. I think that's actually why we love the story of Joseph so much because through Joseph's triumphs, temptations, and tragedies, we see the powerful thread of a loving God working all things for His good to give Him a future and a hope. It's a hard and painful story that God has written for Joseph. But we can see what God was doing, and that gives us hope for our story. So I want us to look at chapter 39 in three sections together. I want us to look at the story in chapter 39, then I want us to consider the main message, and then I want to look at a few applications for us. So let's look at the story in chapter 39. There are four paragraphs in chapter 39. The first paragraph, verses 1 through 6, will look at the prosperity of Joseph then the next two paragraphs will look at the temptation of Joseph. And then the fourth and final paragraph will see the suffering of Joseph. So look with me there at verse 1 in chapter 39. It says that Joseph had been brought down to Egypt. Now, there's a lot packed in that verse. If you know the story of Joseph, or you've been here the last few weeks, when he was brought down to Egypt... That means that he had been what? He had previously been stripped of his clothing by his brothers. He had been abandoned in a pit for a lingering death. He had pleaded for his life only to be rescued by a providential caravan randomly traveling through when his own flesh and blood decided that rather than kill him, they could profit and make a few shekels of silver by selling him. Can you imagine that journey? After being sold and traveling from his home to Egypt, can you imagine how brokenhearted he must have been to be bound as a slave, to be destitute of human support, to be separated from the love of his father, to be an isolated foreigner in an unfamiliar land and thinking he has no hope or no future this teenage boy certainly would have been confused and disoriented. I think it's impossible to overstate what he could have felt in these moments. Hatred, bitterness, and self-pity. And by all human appearance, 
If we look at the story of Joseph, we see someone who appears to have been abandoned by God and who has every reason to fuel his life with the cherished thoughts of revenge and to shake his fist at a sovereign God who is in control of these events in his life. Joseph goes from being brought down to Egypt to being sold now in the marketplace. Can you imagine the humiliation of being stood up on a platform, of staring into foreign eyes for the first time, unable to understand the language, of your muscles being prodded, of your teeth being looked at like livestock to see if people might bid on you for their property? Can you imagine the humiliation Can you imagine how disorienting this was for Joseph? But in God's providence, out of all the people that could have bought Joseph, we see a wealthy Egyptian aristocrat, Potiphar, who bids and buys Joseph. And for the first time, Joseph's circumstances start to change. Finally, things start to improve. If you see in those first six verses... Joseph ascends up the pecking order of the slave caste system. He goes from being a slave in the field to being a house slave to being a personal attendant of Potiphar until finally he's appointed as basically the COO of Potiphar's business. It's a meteoric rise for this immigrant foreign slave to have oversight of everything in his master's house except for one thing, his food in verse 6 that was probably due to a ritual in Egypt. And not only are we told that Joseph prospered, but the household of Potiphar prospered. Potiphar was a pagan, a heathen. He was actually named after an Egyptian god. And just by simply the presence of Joseph, the house of Potiphar prospered. His farm grew. His bank accounts swelled. Why? Do you know why? It's actually really beautiful. Because it's the echo of a promise that God made to Joseph's forefather, Abraham, in Genesis 12, 3. He says, I will bless those who bless you. And he says, you will be a blessing to all people. The house of Potiphar is being blessed by the descendant of Abraham. And it's a foreshadow of all of Egypt being blessed by Joseph during the famine. And it's also a foreshadowing that the entire world, that all nations will be blessed through the descendant of Abraham, Jesus. It's a beautiful reminder that we have a God who makes promises and keeps promises throughout generations. It's also amazing to me to look at Joseph. What was his occupation? He wasn't a famous prophet. He wasn't even a missionary. He wasn't even leading a Bible study. He was just successful as a businessman. And everybody looked at him and said, the Lord is with him. There's a lot to consider in that. I don't have time. So in your home fellowship groups, talk about how God used the vocation, not what we would associate with expanding God's kingdom, but by being a businessman that God brought peace and shalom to the nations. Now, so in the first six verses, we see that Joseph finally begins to experience some prosperity. 
But then we get whiplash because it doesn't last more than six verses. In verse 7, along comes temptation. Mrs. Potiphar, who's not even honored with a name, she starts to tempt him. And we are told in verse 6 that Joseph was what? He was handsome in form and appearance. That means he was broad-shouldered, he was tan, and he had some killer abs. You have to think maybe of Jake Gyllenhaal or maybe Adam Brody. Some of you don't even know who that is. I googled the 50 most beautiful Jewish men in Hollywood and Adam Brody was number one. (laughs) The same description of Joseph is actually used of his mother, Rachel. And so he had really good genes and he was really attractive. And Mrs. Potiphar could not keep her eyes off of him. And in verse 7, very forcefully and very impolitely, she commanded Joseph to lie with her. He refuses her in verses 8 through 9, but we see that she was relentless. And isn't that often true of temptation? Some of the hardest things we face are the things that tempt us day after day. And finally, Mrs. Potiphar can't take it any longer. And so, overcome with lust, she sets a trap for Joseph in her home. As Joseph comes in there, she grabs his garment and he flees. And then, she spins this yarn to the household and to Potiphar. It's pretty amazing to see Joseph's response in this situation. Because, let's be honest, he's a young man. He has uh, raging hormones. He's far from home. He could have reasoned that no one would ever know what he's up to. And he could have said, you know what? Potiphar should have been taking better care of his wife. He also would have been flattered by her attention. He could have been worn down by her unending pressure. And he would have known that she could have either helped him in his career, he could sleep his way to the top, or she could cause him great harm. It's amazing that Joseph met the intensity of temptation with the intensity of conviction. His response is 35 words to her two-word command. If we had more time, we could look at the way that Joseph overcomes temptation. But again, you get to do that in your home fellowship groups this week. So if you're not in a home fellowship group, this is a good advertisement for that. You should join one. They're great opportunities for fellowship and to grow deeper in God's Word. Joseph also knew that his sexual desires were good and they were God-given. But this situation was not God's design and it was not the Lord's best. So how did Mrs. Potiphar respond? In humiliation and with the scorn of a woman, she spews racist accusations to her husband and her husband Potiphar is forced to take action against his most trusted employee. So he goes from prosperity... He goes to temptation, and now in the final paragraph, he goes to suffering in verses 19 through 23. You know, Potiphar could have had him killed. It would have been normal during that time to kill a slave who tried to rape your wife. But instead, he simply has him imprisoned. It's actually kind of a mild punishment. Some commentators have speculated that he knew the character of his wife, and so that's one reason why he doled out this milder punishment. Now, what was it like for Joseph to be in prison? The psalmist in Psalm 105 actually tells us a little bit. 
It says that Joseph's feet were hurt with fetters. His neck was put in a collar of iron. What does that mean? It means while he was in prison, even in the king's prison, they bruised his feet with shackles and his neck was put in irons. Joseph is chained by the neck to a prison wall. Can you imagine what he must have felt falling from prosperity of being the COO of a successful business to now being chained by the neck in an Egyptian prison? Now, commentators aren't agreed on how long Joseph served in Potiphar's house, but most estimate it to be about 10 years. Can you imagine serving your master for 10 years with faithful hard work and responsibility to only be abused, to be unjustly accused and now falsely imprisoned, not because of your wee punkness now, but because of your righteousness. It would have been very easy for Joseph to have reasoned that he has been good to God, but God has not been good to him. And yet again, it's amazing because we see Joseph resist bitterness and he ascends the ranks of the prison and he's actually given authority over fellow prisoners in verse 23 this would be very unusual so in this one chapter alone in 23 verses Joseph goes from the heights of prosperity to temptation and now the lows of suffering and as I read this story this week I was surprised, even shocked, confounded at how he responded to all these situations. Think about what Joseph had going against him. He was a victim of his father's favoritism. He was betrayed and sold by the ones who were supposed to have his back. He lived a slave's life in a foreign country in an unfamiliar heathen culture. In this chapter alone, there's a juxtaposition of exhilarating prosperity and excruciating suffering in a relatively short time. With this on his bio, and this his current experience, he had every reason and every excuse to be self-pitying, self-serving, angry, and cynical. Nobody would blame him. Now, that's what he could think. But that's not what he did. And as I looked at Joseph and I read the story this week, the thing that I thought about is, I want what Joseph had. I want what Joseph had that enabled him to face all the triumphs and all the tragedies of life. Think about this. If I told you that God's love was on you this week, And then you experienced remarkable pain and humiliation the following week. How would you feel if you lost a valuable job because you were stabbed in the back? If you were to suffer unjustly and you're in some type of prison, how would you respond? I'll be honest. I don't think I would respond like Joseph. But I want to. And there's a key message in this chapter that begins to tell us how we can respond like Joseph. It's actually the main theme of the passage. Did you notice the phrase that was repeated throughout the chapter? 
the Lord is with Joseph. The phrase is in the beginning of the chapter in verse 2 and 3. What does it say? The Lord is with Joseph. And he became a successful man. In verse 3, his master saw that the Lord was with him and the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So we see that phrase at the beginning of the chapter and then we see that phrase repeated at the end of the chapter in 21 and 23. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And in verse 23, the keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge. Why? Because the Lord was with him. That phrase is used four times in this passage. It brackets the main message here. And this name of God that's used, the Lord, is the covenant name of God, Yahweh or Jehovah. And you know, the story of Joseph takes up almost one-third of the book of Genesis. And if you read all of those chapters together, it actually reminds me of Esther a lot. Because the name of God is very rarely, if ever, mentioned in the book of Esther. And in Genesis 37 through 50, the same is also true. Very rarely do we see God mentioned in the story of Joseph. In fact, I think it's only mentioned one or two more times through the rest of the book of Genesis. But in this chapter, the curtains are peeled back a little bit. And we weren't told that God was with Joseph in the pit, but now we begin to see what James was talking about last week. We begin to see God's providence, that God is ruling and overruling the ordinary events of Joseph's life for his good and for God's glory. Once again, during an uncertain and a confusing time for Joseph, the thing that made all the difference in the world was that the Lord was with him. Stephen preached a really powerful sermon in the New Testament in Acts chapter 7. And reflecting on the story of Joseph, he says this, And the patriarchs, those were the brothers, the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But what? But God was with him. The Lord was with him in prosperity in Potiphar's house. And the Lord was with him in the suffering of Egypt's dark prison. Friends, the theological centerpiece of this story is the Lord, who's present with Joseph, working for his own glory and for the good of Joseph throughout times of prosperity, throughout times of temptation, and throughout times of suffering. Potiphar's wife wanted her revenge to take Joseph's life. But God had a different plan. God was placing him in prison not to take his life, but to save his life and to save the lives of his family and even the Egyptians. Potiphar's wife meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. The Lord is able to work for the good of Joseph regardless of any human circumstances to make him what? To make him a mediator of God's blessing and to be a deliverer for his people. I love how John Newton summarized this hard and wonderful truth perfectly. 
He said, everything is necessary that God sends. Nothing can be necessary that God withholds. Do you believe this? Do you believe that the Lord was present with Joseph on the mountaintop when he experienced great prosperity and blessing? And do you believe that the Lord was with him in the ordinary humdrum of life and even the painful valleys? We just sang that song, that new song that we learned together, that he's with us even in the valleys. Do you believe that? What do you want? Do you want what Joseph had? Do you want a peace that passes understanding? Do you want a resolve that overcomes tragedy? Friends, there's good news. It came to Joseph and it's offered to us. Because let's just think briefly how to apply this to our circumstances. It's really easy to look in the Old Testament. It's very easy to look at the story of Joseph to see this deliverer and to see how it foreshadows and points forward to the great deliverer, the greater Joseph, Jesus. Think about his story. Jesus was the favored son. He went to a new land. He took the form of a servant or a slave. He was blessed. He had the love of his father at his baptism and then immediately he was tempted but he did not fail. Jesus was also condemned, though innocent. He wasn't guilty, but he was thrown in with the guilty. He was put in the darkness of suffering, and God will lift, it out, lift him out of it and elevate him higher than he's ever been before. And Jesus has been given all authority on heaven and earth. The greater Joseph has risen again, and he has the opportunity to condemn his siblings, you and I, for our failure, for our failure of of, of loving Him. And how does He respond? He responds with forgiveness and blessing. This greater Joseph comes to you and me. And in Matthew 28, He tells us, Surely I will be with you always. The Lord has promised to be with Joseph. The Lord has promised to be with us, His people. Not just in this general sense that God is everywhere. But God has promised to be with His people in a covenantal way. That He will give us His loving presence. That He will give us His kindness. That He will help us, keep us, and bless us. Friends, our situations may change from the mountaintops to the valleys. But our relationship with God will never change because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. And when we understand that, it enables us to respond with peace that passes understanding. To grieve, but to grieve as those not without hope. You see, when we understand this, that Jesus is with us in the dark and in the light, that He's with us now, that He's with us when we take our final breath and he, when He's with us for all of eternity, when we understand that when we are faithless, He is faithful, when we understand that when we are down, God comes down, when we understand that when we weep, God will comfort us. When we understand that when we are lonely, God offers us friendship, everything begins to change. And when you understand that you have His steadfast love, even His steadfast love will redeem you in prosperity, in temptation, and suffering. 
For those of us who fail the trial of prosperity, He offers His success of generosity. For those of us who fail the trial of sexual fidelity, He offers us the success of His purity. For those of us who fail the trial of suffering, He offers us His success of meekness. And the question that is before us today is will you trade your life for His? Will you give up your unrighteousness for His righteousness? Friends, when faced with temptation, we must not turn the story of Joseph into simply moralistic therapeutic deism asking, what would Joseph do in the middle of this temptation? But what we need to do is we need to consider and marvel at what Jesus has done on our behalf. Again, this story is not primarily written to show us how to be good in the midst of prosperity, temptation, and suffering. But it's written to remind us that even in the midst of prosperity and temptation and suffering, God is with us. Friends, when that truth gets a hold of our affections, Everything begins to change. We begin to live like Joseph because we're loved by Jesus. Our families, our communities, our country will look at Christians and say, I want what they have. May that be true of us. Let's pray. Father, we are amazed at the reality of Scripture. That though we face many hardships and pain and suffering, in this lifetime, you are with us. Father, help us to know that. Help us to believe that. Help us to experience that. Father, may the ultimate source of our joy and peace be found in Christ and Christ alone today. In whose name we pray. Amen.